Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 25th, 2021, we continue our series titled Afterlife. Today's sermon, A Difficult Question, will be taught to us by Pastor Joe and Franco. Enjoy. See, it's a difficult subject, the subject of hell, one we want to take seriously and even solemnly. We hear people making jokes about it. I've heard people talk about wanting to go there because their friends will be there and they can party with them. But understood rightly from what the Bible says, it's not a joking matter on any level. Many people refer to the subject too lightly. Hell is a place with no exit doors, and no hope. It's the fulfillment of Hebrews 10.31, which says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So I want to start this message uh, by asking a difficult question. Um, Almost 45 years ago, when I was on my search and I was reading and studying a lot and considering worldviews and things, um, I struggled with, with the Christian faith. And the biggest problem for me was the subject of hell. And the difficult question I thought then was, how can a God of love send people to an eternal hell? These were some of the things I wrestled with. Well, why not just annihilation instead? Just, you know, don't keep them there forever. Just make them go away somehow. You can do that. Or the punishment, it seemed to me, was disproportionate to the crime. Eternity in suffering, and Brendan gave us a great picture of eternity with that rope. Um, I wondered if I were in heaven, how could it be heaven for me if I'm knowing that family or loved ones are not there but that are suffering instead in, in some kind of eternal torment? I even thought this if I were God, I would give people a second chance. Was it possible that I was more merciful than God? Well, I knew that that obviously could not be the case. But it's good for us to ask these questions honestly or wonder about them. Even C.S. Lewis said mere Christianity, he said if it were in his power to remove one doctrine from the Christian faith, it would be the doctrine of hell. But he quickly added, but it's not in my power and I have to conform to the reality of who God is. So how do we understand this idea of hell? Well, we're going to follow the theme of this uh, series. We're going to look to the Bible. We're going to look to the scriptures for um, our answers. Not our limited understanding, not our hopes, not our fears, not our misimpressions, um, but only the Bible. See, even people who don't know the Bible or who not in faith or not in the Christian faith associate Jesus with love, and rightly so. But Jesus, that greatest lover of the souls of men, spoke far more about hell than he did about heaven. And he warned us about it in in the strictest terms. I've heard people say to me, you know, I've heard other Christians talk about this. I hear what you're saying. I don't believe in hell. It was made up by the church to keep people in line and things like that. And I tell them, look, respectfully, you don't disagree with me. You disagree with Jesus. If you think you have better insight on the subject than he did, well, you know, then that's 
up to you. So what does the Bible teach? Point one, hell is an actual place and a destiny. It's not a metaphor for something. And although we, we discuss it as a place and it likely is some kind of location, um, I think it's better not to think of hell so much as that like, oh, you were good, you go to, you know, through this door, you were bad, you go through that door. I think it's more accurate scripturally to think of hell as a destiny um, based upon how we respond to the call of God. Again, we're called to conform to reality. If I decide the law of gravity is tyrannical, I'm ignoring it, I don't believe it any longer, and I'm gonna go to the Grand Canyon and I'm going to disprove it. Well, I do that and I will suffer the consequences of that. So what does God say in his word? The Bible is inerrant. And if any of you have uh, questions about what that means, maybe listen to uh, Pastor Thomas's uh, uh, sermon. It, it was the, um, the uh, cultural series that we did. He talked about why the Bible is a reliable guide. Find that, I think that that will help you. Now, some faiths teach that there is some place called purgatory. It's something like an intermediate state where they would say suffering or purgation occurs. Um, Protestants, generally speaking, do not believe in purgatory. That tends to be a Catholic or Roman Catholic doctrine. I just don't have time to go into it today. If any of you have questions about that, please call me, write me. I'd be happy to sit with you and discuss that a little further. Let's start by looking at what does the Old Testament say? The word that's usually translated hell in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word sheol. It appears 65 times in the Old Testament. But it, its meaning is not always clear. It sometimes means something like death or the grave or the pit or a place that people are after death. But the Old Testament nonetheless is clear in talking about what's coming eventually. Daniel says in Daniel 12 too, and this is a heavenly messenger giving Daniel this information. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. One scholar said, and I agree, the door to the afterlife is open to crack in the Old Testament. It's open wide then in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are three words that are potentially translated as hell. I'm going to focus on only one, which is the most descriptive word and the one that clearly means the place of torment that we're talking about, and that's the Greek word Gehenna. What was Gehenna? Gehenna originally referred to the, a valley just south of Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley. And at one time, uh, Jeremiah tells us, during the history of Israel, uh, when Israel was away from God, they were worshiping the idol Molech, and part of their worship was doing human sacrifices. They would sacrifice children. And that happened in the Hinnom Valley. And so when a good and righteous King Josiah came later, he defiled that so nobody could ever worship there again. And in addition to breaking down all the altars and things, he turned it into a garbage dump. 
They covered the place with sulfur. They knew that sulfur would burn, and they brought their refuse, their garbage, and they dumped it there. In time, they started bringing the bodies of dead animals there, and then finally the bodies of convicted criminals who had died, and they would throw theirs, those in as well. But because garbage was always going in, refuse was constantly going in, along with sulfur, the fire never went out. It was a place where there was the smell of sulfur, the heat of flames, and um, the idea was that this was a fire with putrid smoke that was going to be eternal. And that's the picture that Jesus gives in some instances to describe that place of separation. It's a place, he says, where the fire is not quenched. Here are some descriptions, just a few, from the New Testament, both from Jesus and other New Testament writers, to capture what this place is about. It's called outer darkness. Jude calls it the blackest of darkness, kind of there's no light at all. Eternal fire, a lake of fire, eternal punishment, torment, the wrath of God, the second death, eternal destruction, and exclusion from the face of God. Now, Bible scholars disagree on how literal some of this is. We tend to have this kind of medieval picture in the back of our minds of some place with the flames, but scholars are far from agreement whether those flames are literal or whether they're meant to convey some kind of torment uh, that's ongoing in a human picture that people then would be able to understand. It's even difficult to reconcile some of these. How do you reconcile the, the most black darkness with fire, which naturally produces light? Or who even knows what kind of bodies we're going to have after this? Would there even be a body that would be subject to flames, that is, that would experience pain from the fire of flames? So a lot of these things are not known. What I did is I looked at all the descriptions of hell in the New Testament, and I <clears throat> extracted from them a, def a, a summary that all of them would encompass. And this is the summary that I came up with, the common description. Hell is a state of fixed separation and abandonment from the love of God and of pain beyond human comprehension. Jesus said it's a place where the fire is never quenched. Let me read that cheerful summary to you again. It's a state of fixed separation and abandonment from the love of God and pain beyond current human comprehension. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says that those in hell will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God. Now it's possible that all that they're away from is the love and mercy of God, the parts you would want. It's possible that they're still exposed to the wrath of God. But it may be, if you think of it as a destination, or a destiny rather, what may make hell, hell and the suffering is the fact that one is forever separated from that mercy and that love and that kindness of God. Just as heaven almost can't help but be anything but heaven, because while we're in the presence of a loving, gracious Savior, we understand through eternity the work that he did for us. God's presence alone 
makes that heaven for us if we've been reconciled to him. See, Jesus said this about Judas, who betrayed him, of course. He said, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Let that sink in. He was saying non-existence would have been preferable for what Judas will be experiencing in eternity. And again, he gave us the strongest kinds of warnings. He said in Matthew chapter six, for example, if your right hand is a source of sin, and the right hand in that culture was the hand you ate with, you would never use your left hand. The important functions were done with your right hand. If your right hand is a source of sin, amputate it. If your right eye is a source of sin, he kind of said it's graphic, gouge it out. Because it's better to, uh, it's better to lose parts of your body than to enter into that torment of hell with your whole body intact. Now he obviously was not advocating literal amputation. But Jesus used that graphic illustration to teach us two truths. Number one, deal radically with sin in your life. Don't kind of nurse it and play with it. And number two, he used it as a warning of how terrible hell is. It would be better to suffer these kinds of things than to end up in that place. Now there's a few beliefs about hell. Um, we had some questions about this. I'm going to touch on two just very quickly and there'll be more time Sunday night for this. Uh, these, these are views that we don't accept here at Highlands. The first one is called annihilationism. Annihilationism is kind of like what the word suggests. Um, it, people are eventually annihilated, they're obliterated, their living essence is extinguished. So it's not a perpetual suffering, but life, um, life goes out. Looking at all the verses together, there are verses that talk about destruction in hell, but putting them all side by side and in context, it just doesn't seem that that's the picture that we're given. The second uh, concept that you'll hear sometimes is universalism. Universalism teaches we all get there. The love and the mercy of God are so profound that he keeps working on us and eventually he ushers us all in. Um, in, my, in my fallen human state, I could wish universalism was true. I, I would love to have the comfort of the idea that everybody gets there eventually. But it's not what the scripture teaches. I don't have the option to believe something that the Bible doesn't say is true. And I think the verse that really cements this one among many is in Matthew 12, 32, where Jesus is warning about the unpardonable sin. And the unpardonable sin, a shortcut, is rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting the mercy of God. And Jesus says this about it. He says that those who commit that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. His words, not mine. Point two, hell was created for Satan, <coughs> pardon me, and fallen angels. Matthew 25, 41 says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 20:10 tells us the same thing, that Satan, the Hebrew, the Hasatan, it's a title, the adversary, 
ends up there in that lake of fire. The Bible does not teach specifically when hell was created, but it does, uh, it, it does teach that people who reject the gift of Jesus Christ, who essentially side with Satan in his rebellion, end up there as well. One of the most sobering verses in the Bible is Revelation 20, verse 15, describing the great white throne judgment. Now, I believe Christians do not stand before God at the great white throne judgment. There's a judgment seat of Christ. I don't have time to go into it here, perhaps Sunday night. But at the great white throne judgment, dead in Hades and see everything gives up its dead and they all stand before God and they are judged. And it says there that the book of life is opened and if someone's name is not found in it, he's thrown into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's essentially, again, people who follow Satan in his rebellion. Was it God's desire for any human being to end up there to be lost to him? No, I think this is some of what the scripture teaches. Ezekiel 13, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Or look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all, but that all should reach repentance. There are places in the scripture God actually begs people to be reconciled to him. Think of that. The omnipotent, omnipresent creator of everything pleads with his creation uh, in, in, in many ways. You know, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And I say, though your sins be as red as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. So it was not God's desire that any should perish. So how then do people end up there? God chose us first. We understand and we believe here in predestination. Um, we believe in election. Those are biblical doctrines. But the Bible is also clear that in some way we're called to make choices and our decisions have consequences. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can I reconcile those two thoughts? No. They meet over a horizon of human understanding that I cannot see. Um, God never ceases to be sovereign in anything that he does, but he in some measure holds us accountable and he does so with perfect judgment. <clears throat> now, one might ask, okay, if that's the case, then why didn't God just create everybody to just accept him? If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, why didn't he just make everybody that way. Again, we can't understand God's sovereign ways. He says to us in the Bible, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, you know, his, his ways are that far above us. So um, let me try to offer this explanation, which is helpful to me. If it's helpful to you, consider it. If not, 
disregard it. Um, First John tells us that God is love. Not that he's capable of love or he understands love, those are true too, but in his essence, in his actual being and nature, he is love. Now how can God be love? Love desires the good of another. Love's attention goes to others. We see like a definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Probably a lot of you who are married here had that in your wedding. We see in eternity before any creation this beautiful flow of love. The father loves the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The son loves the father and esteems the father. The Holy Spirit testifies of the son. There's this flow of love. It's almost like a... Uh, a divine dance of love that's happening. And God is in some mysterious, unfathomable way inviting us into that relationship through Jesus Christ. See, I love my wife. Uh, My wife loves me. I made a decision at one point in my life to love my wife, to forsake all others and be with her until death depart, you know, one of us departs from death. And she made the same decision. What made that decision meaningful was that we had the option to not enter into it, but we voluntarily chose to love one another and to complete that love relationship and the flow of that love. See, I think God is doing something He's creating a family. He's creating children. He's creating independent beings capable of loving him and responding to him. He does that by giving a gift we could never earn or never deserve, but think of it this way. If God programmed me to never do anything but love him, press a button, I love you, Lord, right? What would the, how much would that love mean? It wouldn't mean very much because I'm programmed. It's not a choice that I'm able to make that I'm going to fix my love on God. And so in order for that decision to mean something, there has to be the potential that I could choose, I could elect to not love God, to resist God's grace in some measure. See, God, again, is calling us into this amazing relationship. 1 John 1, uh, 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The, the Bible texts don't always capture the emphasis of that. Most of your translations, you'll see an exclamation point. The Amplified Bible really captures it well because John is emphatic here. He wants you to get this. The Amplified Bible says something like this. See what an incredible quality of love the Father has shown and bestowed on us. That we, and he's emphatic on the way, the idea is, get this, that we, should become children of God. He's not just forgiven our sins, yes, he's done that, but he's adopted us to become his children. The Bible says we're going to rule over angels someday. We can't, you know, C.S. Lewis once said, if you saw the lowliest person on earth transformed into heaven to what God intended, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship those people. Some people ask this question. Was it worth it for God to create humanity knowing some people would love him 
and others would rebel against him and therefore be separated from him. Would non-creation have been preferable? Easy question, no. There's only one possible answer. God chose the only possible thing, the best possible way, consistent with his nature and his omnipotence. There's not even a point to wondering whether non-existence would have been preferable. We're all going to stand before God someday and we're going to give account for our lives. We never know the time. We never know when the phone call will come or the accident happens or the diagnosis comes. Jesus told a parable to emphasize this about a man who had a lot of wealth and had a good harvest. And he decided, I know what I'll do, I'll kick back. I'll build a bigger barn, I'll store it up, and I'm just gonna relax and enjoy myself for a while. And this was what Jesus responded of that. He said, and God said to that man, you fool. That was God's view of the situation. You fool. This night, your life will be required of you. And then who's going to have all that stuff that was that was yours. This leads to point three, and that is hell can only be understood by knowing the character of God. God is a person, not in any human sense, but in the sense we can learn of his character and even his emotions. Paul writes in Romans about the righteous wrath of God, the anger of God being revealed. Now think of it this way. If God responded to evil without appropriate judgment, he could be criticized for that. Imagine a judge, and a murderer appears before a judge, a vicious murderer, and the judge looks and says, well, yeah, what you did was pretty bad. You kind of remind me of my nephew. I'll let you go this time. Just behave. What would the reaction be? People would be furious. They'd be called for the removal of the judge. Why would people be angry? because there was not justice. There was not right judgment. And this is something that God has put in every one of us that we know justice is a right thing. Judgment is a right thing. When though we we don't want judgment for ourselves, we want mercy, but something in us is fully aware and God is required to judge in this way. Now, the thing about his anger is it's not, um, it has some of the traits that we would associate with human anger, but it, it, unlike human anger, which is tainted, a lot of times when people are angry or wrathful, um, you know, they're self-centered or vindictive or looking for revenge, God's anger and righteous judgment is perfect. It's the exact right answer for what's happened. God judges righteously, the Bible tells us. Does our rejection of God bring him pain? Yes. Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. He said in Matthew 23, 37, he spoke to the city, he said, how often I would have gathered you away, a hen gathers its little chicks, and you would not. Um, Jesus wept over the city and what was coming. Does our coming to him in surrender bring him joy? Yes. We see this in the prodigal son parable Jesus told, where the father, who's a picture of God, is standing by the hill every day looking and looking. And when the son who was lost is returning, he runs to him. 
He embraces him. He gives him a robe and a ring and sandals for his feet. And I wish we had time to go into the symbolism of that and what those things mean and what the father was giving him. And there's a celebration. We'll kill the fatted calf. The son of mine who's lost is now found. The Bible tells us there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner being reconciled to God than 99 who are continuing you know, in their service to God. Sometimes this is hard for us to grasp. The thought that God has character and emotions makes him personal, or maybe makes him feel almost a little too much like us. Maybe he should be more like the Force in Star Wars or something like that. How could he really have emotions and character? Well, two points on that. First, we're made in his image and likeness. It's natural then that we should have emotions just as he does. It's natural that we should understand love so that we can understand his love for us and love him in return. It's what Paul says in the, I think in, in, the, in, in Romans, he says, don't you know man, it's the goodness, you might just put love in there too. It's the goodness and love of God that leads us to repentance. It's knowing how good he is and how much he loves us that turns our hearts towards him. Second, his emotions, as I said before, are not debased, they're not carnal like ours. God is fully righteous and love and light. But thank God that that's not the end of the story of his character. He's a God who is righteous, who will judge, but he is a God of profound mercy and love. And he emphasizes his mercy once we get that we're separated from him. He emphasizes his mercy throughout the Bible almost more than anything. Look at this Psalm of David, how David put it beautifully in Psalm 103. I won't read the whole thing. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide us or keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us for our iniquities. David says he takes our sins and he removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Just keep going. It never ends. So how did God show us that mercy so we would not end up in this place? He did that by paying the price for our sins and satisfying the judgment that his righteousness recovered, that required. It happened by Jesus' death and suffering on the cross. God so loved the world, you all know this verse, that he gave his only begotten son. How did God demonstrate his love? By giving. By giving the most precious thing he could, which was his son, to suffer and die in place of us for our sins. What about people who have not heard the gospel? We wonder about our loved ones who have passed by. We'll talk more about that on Sunday night. Um, Jesus uh, says in, you know, in Matthew 7, and, uh, chapter 7, verse 8, that the one who seeks will find, the one who knocks for that person it will be open, and we know that we're in the hands of a loving and merciful God. We can't know what happens to a person in the last moments of their life. We don't know what they might have heard, what they might consider. I just have to take comfort in this. 
that whatever happens for those people, they are in the hands of the greatest mercy that anyone can conceive, but also a God who is going to judge fully righteously. What does it mean for us that God has paid our debt and that we're saved through Christ? It means we don't have any power to save ourselves. Let's be clear about that. Even if God counts our decision for something, we've not merited God's gift in any way. Even if we make a decision, the very gift of faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you've been saved. And that through faith, it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. It's God's love and mercy and unmerited favor that reconcile us to him. So how do we think through this? We're involved somehow in making a meaningful choice, but God never ceases to be sovereign. Here's the thoughts of two great Christian thinkers who are on, would draw the line in different places um, on, that, on the balancing of those topics. First is J.I. Packer. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is something which people choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it's a state for which a person himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead to himself. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in judicial action toward the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choice he's made. C.S. Lewis put it more succinctly. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. The soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will, will never miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it's open. Which brings us to our last point. God paid the price to keep us from hell. God paid the price for our sins. There will always be some who will inevitably say to God, not your will, but my will be done. The theme song for hell might be something like, I did it my way. And the God who's fully paid that price for our sins with his own beloved son, who loves us beyond comprehension, will grant us that wish. By rejecting his offer, God's wrath remains on us. And this is important to understand. The Bible teaches we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, God's wrath is on every single one of us. By accepting his merciful provision, we're no longer under that wrath. The Bible says in John 3.36, and hear it carefully, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Make no mistake about it. If you've not received the mercy of God, you are still under the wrath of God, and we never know when we're going to leave this life. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible teaches. When we decided to do this series, we knew we would have to do the subject of hell. 
And let me just say, um, it's a subject that Christians often avoid. It's a difficult subject to approach, and it's easy to see why. This message was not meant to scare you or cause fear or dread. The motive of this message is love, that you would know and understand God's love and the greatness of what he did in reconciling us to himself. I'm going to invite the worship group back up now, and I'm going to close with a few thoughts. I started this message by saying, close to 45 years ago, I wrestled with a difficult question. In deciding whether I should come to faith, I was troubled by the fact that hell existed and I kept asking myself over and over, how could a God of love condemn people to hell? Now that I've walked with the Lord and discovered his love and mercy and seen the joy that he's brought to my life and the restoration that he does in lives all around us, I don't think that's the difficult question any longer. The difficult question to me now is this. How could anyone who hears of the mercy and love of God reject that loving God? How could anyone say no to a God who loved us so profoundly that he gave his own son to keep us from that destiny of hell. I'm going to lead in a prayer. I know most of you here are believers. There may be some who came out of curiosity. If you've not made a commitment to Christ, if you'd like, pray with me in this prayer and I'd like to talk to you about that. It's a simple prayer. There's no magic formula. Um, you know, some people think, well, is it the right prayer? Are there special words? The Bible says man looks at the outward part, but God looks on the, the heart. The best example of that for me is two thieves dying on either side of Jesus. A thief on one side was railing and yelling at Jesus, making the same kind of statements the crowd was. The thief on the other side looked over and said to the other thief, we deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. That was quite a statement. They were likely murderers. They were the worst form of criminals. And then that man, hours from death, looked over at a battered, bleeding savior, blood still flowing down his head from the cruel crown of thorns, the body sagging, fighting to breathe, but he saw something. God awakened something in his heart. He didn't know the right way to pray. He didn't have time to get his life in order. Don't think you have to get your life in order to pray. Come to God just as you are. And he looked over and he said, Lord, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And a dying savior, wracked in his own pain, looked over at that man and in his suffering, in his agony, thought of another person and said to him, I tell you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. It was a heart that God saw, a heart that wanted God's love, that wanted to be reconciled to God. If you've not received that grace and you want to pray with me, just follow along quietly. I'll ask everybody to bow their head. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a serious time, so let's pray. Again, if you've not accepted Christ,
Just pray this prayer with me. Father, I thank you for your incredible love and mercy. I thank you for the grace that you've shown me in giving the gift of your son for the forgiveness of my sins. I accept the gift that you've given. I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I repent of those sins and I desire to have a new life with you, to know you intimately, to know your love and mercy, to live in this world with you and be your example for other people in Jesus' Let's name. thank the worship group again for bringing us into the presence of the Lord. Thank you. If you're here today and you're a believer, a message like this should challenge you. Be more active in loving people, showing the love of Christ, sharing the gospel, pouring out your love so that others will see the love of Jesus Christ in you. If you happen to be here today and you've never trusted in Jesus and you prayed that prayer, it'll be a privilege to meet you up front. There'll be some pastors and elders around. Or if you have any questions or just like to talk, come up. If you're interested in knowing the next steps, if you've prayed for the first time, or maybe even you prayed and you said, I've been kind of on the fence, I prayed, it's time to start living for God. Please go to the information tables in the back There'll be information on next steps, how you put feet to this journey of faith and walk with God and trust in him. So thank you all. Blessings, Highland Church. Go with the Lord.